Welcome to Politics Plus, conversations about American politics, economics, history, and culture. I'm your host, Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is journalist, author, and policy analyst David Frum. Mr. Frum is currently a senior editor at The Atlantic. From 2014 through 2017, he chaired the board of trustees of the leading UK center-right think tank, Policy Exchange. He served as a speechwriter and special assistant to President George W. Bush and as senior advisor to the Rudy Giuliani presidential campaigns. He's also the author of nine books, most recently, Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic. David Frum, welcome to the show. Thank you. What a pleasure to be back. You know, I, I often start off with authors by asking, well, what prompted you to write this book? Now, now in this case, I think that seems pretty obvious. Let me ask you a different question. Uh, can you explain what Trumpocracy is? For sure. Um, Trumpocracy refers to the system of power that brought Donald Trump to the presidency and that sustains him there. There's a lot of attention to the oversized personality um, of the president. I pay less attention to that and more to systems, how he got there, how he stays there. After all, so much of what defines both the Constitution and party government are a series of norms, systems, institutions designed to screen people like this away from power. If he got past them, how would he do it? Right. You know, I, I wanted to ask you about people and say people like this. And it occurred to me when I think about Donald Trump, and I think a lot of people think would say that, well, OK, he's he's incurious, he's lazy, he's narcissistic, he's insecure, uh, easily manipulated, erratic, crude, racist, maybe even, and of course, very uh, mendacious. But it also occurred to me that I can think of presidents that have had many of these traits in the past. And so what makes Donald Trump different? Well, we certainly have had racist presidents before. Um, we've had uh, lazy presidents before, as you say, and we've had untruthful presidents before. Um, I, we've never had a president who um, operated a business as president. Uh, certainly not a business that was basically an international influence peddling scheme. I mean, I, I suppose there are presidents who operated farms or plantations while president, um, but they were not selling the presidency. What is distinctive about Donald Trump um, is his almost absolute, almost total lack of business ethics. I mean, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, we're all conscious of not wanting to overstep the facts or libel law, but this is someone who has made his living for many, many years operating on the margins of the law, let's put it that way, and surrounded by people who look like they've broken the law. So that's the first thing that is unusual, is um, the, the shameless lack of ethics around his business career um, and that continues as president. The second thing, of course, is this terrible shadow of the influence of a foreign power upon him. Um, and that is probably the single most important aspect of this presidency and of his unfitness. When the impeachment power was debated in Philadelphia in 1787. The, the paradigmatic thing they had in mind, um, the greatest danger they feared was a president who in some way was receiving pay from a foreign government and was doing that government's bidding. That's what it looks like we've done. Now, that makes me think about, think about, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the Clintons, uh, Bill, Bill Clinton as president, and uh, there was Recently, I think a pretty interesting piece by Josh Barrow in, in Business Insider, and essentially he argued that that Donald Trump's corruption was made possible, at least in in some part, 
by the Clintons' corruption. And some of that, of course, involved foreign governments. And, and not only that, but the Democratic Party sort of falling all over itself to justify that. And, and I'm wondering if you think that the Clintons and the Democratic response to their ethical issues are, in fact, a, a significant contributor to you know what we're seeing today. Um, I, I read that Josh Barrow article, and it's very thought-provoking. Look, it, it is certainly true that the Bill Clinton ex-presidency broke all kinds of patterns. Uh, I, I wrote a history of the 1970s um, called How We Got Here. It was published now almost 20 years ago. And one of the points I make in that book is the first former president of the United States ever to give a speech for money after leaving office was Gerald Ford. It was unheard of for a former president to do that before Gerald Ford began doing it. Wow. Um, and that there were just – a whole series of limits on what former presidents did. Um, now, they were reinforced by the fact that foreign president, former presidents tended to die pretty rapidly after leaving office. <laughs> so um, the idea of having um, – but when you did have a healthy man uh, live for many years after leaving the presidency, Herbert Hoover, for example, they – Herbert Hoover observed a lot of um, ethical limits on what he did as a former president. So did um, – uh, so did Harry Truman, who lived for many years after leaving the presidency. So it was a remarkable thing for Bill Clinton to set up this mega influence operation that he set up. And it was all the more troubling that he did it because he wasn't truly an ex-president. From the moment he left office, everyone knew that his wife was a very credible candidate to be the next president. And as bad as it is for a former president to sell access, it's obviously much worse for a possible future president or husband of a future president to do it. So I, I think Barrow makes a point. Um, it is worth bearing in mind that the worst day in the Clinton world remains a better day than the best day in the Trump world. Well, I wonder if sort of the, the source, the motivating factor behind this corruption in either case makes a difference, because it, it seems to me that the Clinton corruption stems from this idea that we are we are better and more virtuous and more ethical. And so we don't need these rules that must apply to those less intelligent and ethical than we are. But the Trump corruption to me seems very different. It's almost like he wants to stick it to these smug political elites. And, you know, he's this sort of street fighter. And the fact that throughout his career, the elites have never really accepted him as a serious person seems to just make that even more of a, of a factor for him. I mean, is that, you're probably in a better position than anyone I've ever talked to, to uh, hold forth on this authoritatively. Well, what do you think about that? Well, let me put it a slightly different way. Um, uh, in the world of tax, lawyers distinguish between tax avoidance and tax evasion. Uh, tax avoidance is when a bunch of smart accountants read the tax code very carefully and discover a way, maybe that the government itself had never imagined, whereby completely legally um, you can avoid paying the tax that other people who are less careful might have paid. Tax evasion is just not paying your taxes. Tax avoidance um, raises policy problems, but is legal. Tax evasion is a crime. I would say what the Clintons were doing uh, in, in the ex-presidency years, and I want to distinguish, we are talking about the ex-presidency, because Bill Clinton is president, um, you know, I, I don't love a lot of aspects of his behavior, but he was not, and he was fundraising, and he was fundraising in dodgy ways, but he was not raising money for his own personal benefit. That happened afterwards. But what Clinton was doing was always carefully 
within the law. And it's true. Look, the Clintons are smarter than Trump. And so um, they would understand the difference in law and not law, and they would have access to, and they paid their bills, so they had access to legal talent. And so they could think of new ways to monetize the formal presidency that were, no one had done them before, but they were legal. Uh, the things that Trump is doing, Trump just is utterly indifferent to law, and he breaks it all the time. Um, and uh, and has often been caught, um, and has so far gotten away with being punished. But I think uh, with, without being punished in a serious way. But I think um, again, it 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 is uh, dangerous to it, that it, if Barrow was saying, look, the um, the example of the Clintons made the country vulnerable to the worst case of Trump, and if the example of the Clint- and if the defense of the Clintons made the Democrats more tongue-tied in their ability to criticize Donald Trump. Those things are too. But if there's any parallel between what they're doing, I, I reject that. Um, you know, at some level, I'll tell you what, I, I think Hillary Clinton, who was on the ballot last time, I think she's a patriot. Um, I think she would not uh, have taken a meeting with a hostile foreign intelligence agency. And I don't think Donald Trump is a patriot. Did do you think that that not taking a meeting is more a case of just that's smart politics and you just don't do that? And because and, a lot of times what I hear from uh, I've made this argument myself is that the Trump people are so inexperienced that maybe they just didn't know, but know well enough to not take that meeting. Um, ideally, you want your um, your presidential campaigns to be full of people who are ethical and smart. Um, failing that, uh, you like at least ethical or smart. Um, uh, sometimes it happens, or uniquely in this case, you had a campaign that was neither ethical nor smart. So an ethical person would know if this is just wrong. And a, a smart person would know we're going to, we, we're likely going to get into a lot of trouble. And maybe this is even a setup by the FBI. So what was distinctive about Paul Manafort and Don Jr. And especially, I mean, it was, um, Manafort is one of the most, one of the least, most shockingly unethical people ever to be in the vicinity. Um, I think in Don Jr.'s case, it would be less accurate to say that he's unethical, but as to say, it's kind of like colorblindness. He just is that part of human experience is un- he's unaware of it. <laughs> um, that you know, there, there, there are these, con- it's like some people can't see red or green. He can't see right or wrong. He just doesn't understand these as different concepts. And it's true of that something inherited, but they were also stupid. Um, and, and one other thing that because they were such a low grade operation that there was no, I mean, there was no one around the campaign. They just didn't have smart people there who could warn them. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've talked to people who've worked on very serious, you know, high levels of important campaigns, and they say, let's not be naive about this. Every presidential campaign discovers that people are trying to penetrate. Uh, maybe it's not as blatant to somebody like the Russians, but the Chinese show up, the Japanese show up, um, uh, you know, the Japanese, friendly people, the Japanese, um, and they want things. And a large part of work of one of the things that normally happens on a campaign is you've had people who have had intermediate roles before who are now in senior roles, and they've seen this process. And they know what to do, and they know what not to do. They know how to politely refuse a meeting. Um, they, uh, they know when to refer people to the foreign policy team. Um, and they, they know when to call the FBI. Trump didn't have those people. And he, they, because they also had no sense of right and wrong, um, they, well, as we say, if it's what didn't, they weren't just victims here. As Don Trump said, in his Don Trump Jr. in his email, if it's what you say it is, I love it. Well, if it's what you say it is, it's a crime. 
Yeah, I think John, uh, Jonah Goldberg has called it sort of the, the Fredo explanation or the Fredo defense and uh, that, that idea that they just weren't smart enough or ethical enough uh, to, to do that. Um, you know, you, we made, I talked about this comparison between the Trump, well, the Trump administration and the Clintons, but there's another uh, comparison that I hear from some of my friends on the right. When I talk to them about President Trump's lies, invariably, I hear Obama promised that under Obamacare, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor, or they'll bring up Benghazi. And they say, you know, sure, Trump lies. Well, some of them say that, but then they'll say, but those those lies by Obama and by Clinton and Susan Rice and whatnot, the, those lies were far more consequential than any of Donald Trump's lies. Uh, what's your view of that? I think that's at best disingenuous. And um, well, here, here's the analogy to if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Um, the authors of the Republican uh, tax plan that passed at the end of 2017 predicted that if this plan were pa- passed, we would see an increase in corporate investment. Well, it's now been six months and we have not seen an increase in total in corporate investment. Was that um, So they were wrong. Were they lying? No, they were selling. And they were dealing with something that was inherently unknowable. I mean, you couldn't know for sure whether corporate and, and something that they had reason to believe would happen, even though many smart economists told them they wouldn't. They took the base, best case scenario favorable to what they wanted to do for other reasons um, out of a range of statements about the future. And their statement turned out to be untrue, as um, Obama's statement turned out to be untrue. Um, I wouldn't call Paul Ryan a liar for saying, for telling people I expect corporate or even if he said it categorically, we passed this tax cut, corporate uh, investment will rise, and it doesn't. That's not a lie. Um, that's that's sort of politics as usual. Um, and uh, you know, it's the, and it's the difference between politics and economic prediction. You know, an, an economist would never have said so categorical a thing. Um, how to say for? Uh, I mean, Donald Trump's lies are much more in the what dead body category. <laughs> Um, that they are they, they, they are much more like uh, I think they are more comparable to the kind of lies that you hear in a non-democratic system. And I'm right now reading Timothy Snyder's book, The Road uh, to Unfreedom, which I strongly recommend. And he, ta- he talks there about you know, the way Putin lies. When Putin will say things like there are no Russian troops in Ukraine when he himself has just sent Russian troops to Ukraine. And he doesn't because Putin's lies, he doesn't expect you to believe him. He doesn't expect you to think he's telling you the truth. He's lying. You know he's lying. He knows you know. Um, and what he's doing is he's asserting his power by forcing people to deal with blatantly untrue statements. And, and, and that's the reason that Donald Trump's statements are so uh, disturbing. Um, there's a question always with Donald Trump, is he delusional or does he not even know? And sometimes I think he is delusional, but at other times his behavior um, I mean, the way he suppresses information, the way he suppresses uh, information about his businesses gives me a pretty good idea. He knows that, th- that there is an external world out there that could contradict what he's saying. You talk about, look, you mentioned uh, asserting power. And, you know, one thing I've noticed for people who are supporters of Donald Trump is they love how, well, they say he sort of subverts these elite political figures and it just drives them absolutely nuts. And it seems to be 
I don't know, it seems to me to be a big part of his uh, appeal, certainly, but their argument is that he he gets essentially attacked unfairly because he's telling the elite politicians and the elite media, listen, I'm not going to play your game by your old Washington rules. I'm going to talk, you know, straight talk to real Americans and, uh, and that sort of thing. I mean, it, is that... Is there anything to that argument that you sometimes hear from the kind of on the pro-Trump right? Um, I think when I hear this way, um, if I walked in front of you and punched a baby in the face, and I said, you know, the thing you got to love about me, so well, there are a lot of people out there who, you know, namby pamby, old Washington ways, they'd never punch a baby in the face. Isn't it time that you had somebody? Ever, there are a lot of people who don't like babies, but none of them have ever punched a baby in the face before in front of you. So I'm telling you, I really don't like babies. Smash, punch the baby in the face. Admire me? Not so much. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> that it's true. Every day, Donald Trump does things that no national politician has ever done before. It's true. But they're terrible things to do. And it's not stuffy or old-fashioned or out of touch to say, you shouldn't have punched that baby in the face. Um, it's decent. And, and uh, what is really remarkable, what is terrible at Trump, one of the many bad things he's doing to our society, is once you've signed on to um, defend Donald Trump, it's like stepping onto some terrifying ride at Six Flags. The ride is going to take you in directions and in places that if you'd really thought about it, you probably wouldn't want to go, and you have no control over it. Because once you're on, you lose, the, the ride is in charge. And Donald Trump will every day, as he did on Memorial Day, uh, with those astonishing statements um, about how grateful and glad soldiers, the dead soldiers would be, some of them dead just a few days, some of them mourned by wives and children and parents, would be to see how successful he is. I mean, you think... It's just a, every day there's something like that. And if you sign up, um, you will end up having to defend things that if you'd have the opportunity in advance, you would never have done. But even, okay, even so, then, and there are people on the right who I've talked to who say, yes, that's all true, but he's awful, but... We've got Gorsuch on the court. We've got tax reform. There's no more Obamacare mandate. Our embassy's finally in Jerusalem. We're out of the Iran deal. You know, the regulatory rollback, all this stuff. And all of that, in their view, outweighs what they will admit freely are his incredible flaws as a human being. Uh, it, uh, what do you think about that? Okay, I, I get that. I, I think those things fall into two categories. So some of them are categories of value. What do you, what do you value? Um, and I'm certainly happy to have Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. Um, but I, the reason I'm happy to have Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court is because I care about the Constitution. And to have a, a ninth judge upholding the Constitution in a way that I think is unbalanced, more right than wrong, versus having the one and only president being someone who acts in a way that subverts the Constitution and the sovereignty of the country because of his connections to a foreign power. I, that's not a trade I would make. In other cases, like the Iran deal, I, I think, okay, but one's a trade-off. I think in the Iran deal, that's much more like um, going out on a spending spree with someone who's using, using a credit card that I strongly suspect he doesn't have means to pay. And so they're saying, you know, do you, do you enjoy the theater tickets? I, yeah, not so much. 
not so much because because I'm watching you go bankrupt. And that's the truth. Of, that's what's happening with the Iran deal. I was opposed to entering the Iran deal. But if you're going to exit it, there are a number of things you have to do, including coming up with a plan for how you're going to impose, how you want to um, persuade or compel India and China to join you in imposing economic sanctions on Iran. And if you don't have that plan, and this administration doesn't, then you know, as much as we enjoy purchasing the Broadway tickets and sitting through the show, the bill is in the mail and it's arriving within 30 days. So do you think that Republican congressional leadership, you know, McConnell and Ryan and so forth, that they've essentially made that deal? I mean, you said it's not worth the trade-off, but do you think that they've essentially enabled him as opposed to, say, you know, uh, Bob Corker, John McCain, Jeff Flake, those sort of people, that they've just said, you know what, we'll take the policy wins and just try to deal with the fallout, basically. I mean, look, I think McConnell and Ryan are very different kinds. Of um, Ryan is a true believer in McConnell as well. Um, Ryan is believed in the tax cut. He believes in that more than he believes in anything. He believes in it more than he believes in the independence of the United States from Russia. Um, and he's willing to make that trade. I don't, that's a kind of idealism. Uh, it's not an idealism that I share um, because I, at some level, at some level, you have to ask yourself, how much or how little do you have in common with your fellow Americans? How much do you care about your common American project? And I, you know, I, I like tax cuts. Uh, do I like them enough that I would accept what happened in the election in 2016? So I, I like them. I don't like them that much. You know, though some people who are feeling exactly the way you're feeling say, well, sure, but Donald Trump is president in a system that is designed to frustrate presidents. And God knows we've seen him frustrated a lot by, you know, the courts, by the Democrats, even, you know, sometimes by his own party in Congress. And so these people will say, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm not crazy about it, but hey, the system's working and we're fine. Well, um. I think in many ways you can see the system is, is not working. Um, and what, one of the things I think we're all getting an education in, I, I don't think Donald Trump has plans, I don't think he's a strategic thinker, but he, he does have, and this goes back to the title of the book, an instinct for power. And he's surrounded by people who do enable him. Um, and it's a, you know, we, the independence of the FBI, the independence of the Department of Justice, which have been features of American politics since at least Watergate, um, DOJ, I think there's a feeling even before Watergate that it should be an, not completely a tool of the president. Those things really are in danger in a way they have not been in danger for, for a long time. Yeah. You know, I wanted to ask you about that specifically because, of course, this whole the saga about the FBI and the intelligence services being part of a, a vast uh, a vast left wing, I guess, deep state, deep state conspiracy that's, you know, intent on destroying the president. Now, this isn't something that all, all Republicans buy into. I mean, I think there's been some great sort of back and forth inside National Review with some of their authors about that. But it's strange to me to see a party that I've identified for my entire lifetime with national security and supporting the intelligence service and the FBI all of a sudden turn on them. Well, that this goes to this question. And this is one of the really difficult things raised by the Trump years. And one of the reasons I, I wrote the book to go back to the, the question that you didn't ask at the very beginning, um, which is, as we become a more diverse society, um, many Americans feel that they have less and less commitment to all of America. Uh, they have a commitment to their people, 
but they don't have a commitment to their tribe, or they don't have a commitment to their country. And that means that they're willing to tolerate attacks on things that belong to all if they feel they're going to get a benefit for their particular subgroup. And that, that sounds a lot like uh, a, a part in the book where you wrote, Donald Trump did not create the vulnerabilities that he exploited, they awaited him. Exactly. So I think we have been, um, you know, that he's not some charismatic genius. And indeed, he lost by three million votes in the popular vote. But he found a highly riven society um, in the aftermath of a, a lost war and in the aftermath of a terrible economic crisis. Um, and in, in a country that has that has been coming apart because of extremely high levels of immigration and low levels of native births. And he just found um, at, in a political system where things have become more extreme and where the parties are playing the game more roughly than they did than they did in our earlier lifetime. And beginning with the end of the Cold War, I think the game in Washington's played differently. And politicians feel they have less in common with one another, partly because of the retreat of national security issues. And he took advantage of that, or he was the beneficiary of it. So it, it seems like he, he maybe saw these things or at least instinctually understood these things before any of the cast of thousands of Republicans running against him. And he's certainly a lot better at connecting with people than, than, say, Hillary Clinton, which makes me think, well, this is just sort of a one off, essentially, because there were these, you know, unique circumstances with this, again, this huge Republican field and unfairly undistinguished for the most part, and then Hillary Clinton being quite possibly one of the worst retail politicians we've seen in, in a while. I mean, does that does that give you any, any hope, I guess? Well, I certainly agree with you that he understood things that Jeb Bush and the others on the Republican stage I did not understand. I mean, there are three million Americans who would disagree with you that Hillary Clinton connected less well with America than Donald Trump did. I, I think if you just count noses, she connected rather better. Um, she didn't connect with them in the right places, but but she certainly connected overall. She connected with them better. Uh, but it is, I think, the story of Donald Trump. The most dramatic part of the story of Donald Trump, to my way of thinking, is a story inside the Republican Party and the obsolescence of the Republican Party's message, um, and how rejected that message was by Republican voters who have been signaling through the Tea Party from Trump 2009. They were signaling what we want is um, more Medicare less immigration, and no more Bushes. And the party in 2016 said, right, what you're getting is less Medicare, more immigration, and one more Bush. And the Republican Party rejected that and nominated Donald Trump. And then by a lucky bounce, uh, he won the presidency. You know, one thing I've noticed about, or at least I think I've seen, uh, as kind of a common thread that ties together a lot of what Donald Trump has done as president, and really throughout his career, I guess, is is I get a sense that he thinks that we're involved in a, a zero-sum game. And, and not just that, but a zero-sum game in which the only thing that matters is the deal that's on the table today. And so... You know, for instance, uh, this idea that we might stay in a, an international agreement that isn't perfect for us, but it affects our future legitimacy. It might even affect the stability of the international system. This is something that wouldn't even be seen as a consideration by this administration. Does that does that seem about right to you? Yeah, he also has this view, and, um, and this is really disturbing for our trade relations, um, that in any deal, there's a winner and a loser. And the winner is only a winner if he makes the loser feel like a loser. So well, the way American diplomacy has worked since the end of World War II has been that we've gone to country, our friends and said, 
we have an idea for something that makes everybody better off. Uh, Germany, France, if you guys drop your customs barrier, you will each be better off. There will be only winners here. And so it was with NAFTA. NAFTA has yielded only, I mean, there's, there's in particular industries and particular sectors that have, uh, that, that have um, lost employment or lost income. But overall, from a national basis, Canada, the United States, and Mexico are all winners. And Donald Trump doesn't believe the world is organized that way. Because um, I, I think when you look at the way, the mental conditions that shape his brain, that he is incapable of having egalitarian relations with people. He's not, he, he, his own mode is either he's either sucking up, as he did to Putin, or he's bullying. But he, the idea of having um, any kind of egalitarian, and that's why he's never been able to sustain any kind of proper marriage, uh, because he cannot, he cannot be, and that's why he has no friends. He, he cannot be an equal with another equal. You know, it's... it's Depressed as this all gets me at times, I think to myself, well, Donald Trump is such a unique individual that even if the worst happens, by January 2025, this will be over and the system will start to self-correct. I mean, it's done it for hundreds of years. It did it after the Civil War. So is that is that reason to be optimistic, would you say? Well, let, let, I, would, I would say my life message is that you should um, think like a pessimist and act like an optimist. Okay. I, I'm very, all the ways, you know, you know America, it's, it's like, um, it's had a very lucky history. It's like a toddler weaving across traffic. But there is no guarantee that things would work out. You know, you, you talk about the Civil War. Um, people now don't think much about the life of Henry Clay. But Henry Clay's greatest achievement, for which he was much execrated at the time, was the Compromise of 1850 which some pretty scummy things, that's the Fugitive Slave Act and so on, but it averted a crisis that could have led to the Civil War in 1850. Had the Civil War been fought in 1850, the South would have won. Henry Clay bought 10 years, and by buying 10 years, 11 years actually, I should say, by buying 11 years, he let, he ensured there was enough industrial development, enough railway development in the North, that the North won. Um, but it didn't have to be that way. And we need to bear in mind, I mean, Americans have been so powerful, so lucky, so long, that they think it's somehow written in the stars. And it's up to us. So I would say, um, let's hope you're right. But let's not count, let's act as if we understand that how the country stands in 2025 will depend on decisions we make in 2018. So one final question then for you, right, right along those lines. What's your advice for people who want to, you know, push back against Trumpocracy and all that it represents? I mean, what can we do now, you know, not just to limit the damage, but to minimize the possibility that this this situation will be something that will come up again in the future? Well, I, I would say for people who are, I mean, there, there are many, diff many different people in situations where they can do a lot. But if you're not in that situation, there are two things for sure you can do that may not make an immediate difference, but will make one of the longer. Um, the first is uh, to be a better consumer of information. Make a commitment really to understand what's going on um, and to rely on authoritative sources of information. And to remember also that if you carry a smartphone in your pocket, you're not just a consumer of information, you're a distributor. Be a responsible distributor. Let it be your motto, let the fake news stop, stop with me. And liberal people, as we saw this weekend, where um, so many people were forwarding an image from 2014, um, that the, from the Obama years as if it were something that was happening now because they didn't check, do not retweet or post on your Facebook page or like on Instagram anything unless you've made some independent effort to verify it. doesn't mean you have to be 
you know, the New Yorker fact-checking department. Just click it through and make sure you know where it comes from and that you can trust it. And the second thing I would say, in addition to being a better consumer news information, is we all need to be better citizens. And that means get involved with the PTA, get involved with your local neighborhood advisory committee, care about zoning and planning, um, because one of the things that enables figures like Donald Trump to emerge is a breakdown of our political culture, a weakening of the bonds of citizenship. It is really strict. When, you know, you began by, as Dad's advocate, raising these questions that were premised on the idea that our politics is war. Um, that, you know, there are, you know, you're a liberal, you're a conservative, and, uh, and really any meth, anything you do to win against these internal enemies is justified. Join a committee and work with people who can see the world somewhat differently from you. And one of the, the most important thing you learn from that is, you know what, the rules matter more than the outcome. It's better, you know, and uh, so that anybody who's been on a PTA knows this. There is no, there is no decision the PTA could make that is more important than continuing the existence of the PTA as a functioning body. And that local experience should inform our national politics as well. We should all be a little less ruthless, a little more committed to the rules. And that means we'll be less vulnerable the next time somebody who may next time be a liberal or a Democrat or on the left or speak for some ethnic nationality uh, who says, I alone can fix it. And in order to get things done, you have to burn your constitution down. Absolutely. Well, with that, with that very good advice, we will close. David Frum, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. But wait, there's more. Now, if you're like me, you hate those canned podcast endings that just basically make you want to hit stop and go on to the next thing you're going to do. Well, I'm going to try something a little different. I'm going to end every single show with a weird, quite possibly true, at least true to the best of my knowledge, political fact or factoid. I'm not really sure of the difference anyway. So if you can just bear with me for one minute, because I really do need to tell you that subscribing to the show helps out a lot. So if you could do that, that would be great. Also sharing this episode with your friends, enemies, neighbors, colleagues, what have you, that helps a lot because word of mouth is still the best way to build an audience for a show. Finally, if you want to get in touch with me, it's really simple to do. Just email me at mike at politicsplus.us. That's politicsplus.us, not com or org or anything. Why? Well, I could say that the U.S. Is, sounds very American, and I thought it would be clever and different and so forth. But honestly, my first idea was politicsplus.com, and that domain was taken. So there you go. But I think U.S. works out well. Also, the website for the show is politicsplus.us. All right, so what's my fun political fact of the day? Well, I don't know if it's fun. It's interesting to me. President Andrew Jackson supposedly taught his parrot the curse, and he did such a good job of it that the parrot had to be taken away from Jackson's funeral because it was cursing too much. Is that true? I don't know, but I sure hope so. Anyway, I'll be back with a new interview next week. I hope you'll join me.